this week's ACCP Emergency Medicine PRN Journal Club presentation. I'm your host, Christian Kroll, an emergency medicine and ICU pharmacist at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics. To view this recorded presentation, head to our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash at ACCP EMED PRN. And for PRN members, slides can be found under the business document section on the ACCP Emergency Medicine PRN website. Dr. Minden Huntrods, who's a current PGY1 pharmacy resident at Indiana University Health Academic Health Center. So today I will be looking at a recent article published in the New England Journal of Medicine in just March of this year. So this is hydrocortisone in severe community-acquired pneumonia. Just to get started with a little bit of background in community-acquired pneumonia, it is typically responsible for about 1.5 million emergency departments visits annually, and it's been reported as the eighth leading cause of death historically. Also, it's the leading infectious cause of death, although I will say that probably doesn't necessarily include all of the COVID-related deaths that we've seen in recent years. Overall, historically, it's represented more like 41,000 deaths annually in the United States. This mortality rate actually approaches 25% in patients admitted to the ICU, and as you're all aware, this can be bacterial, viral, or fungal in etiology, with strep pneumo being the number one isolated organism. To dive into previous studies just a bit, the first study published in 2005 actually was a multicenter randomized controlled trial um, looking specifically at ICU patients. And it only included 46 patients, ultimately utilizing hydrocortisone IV 200 milligram bolus with an infusion at 10 milligrams per hour for seven days compared to placebo. They did find a statistical benefit in using hydrocortisone in the following outcomes of PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, CRP, the multi multiple organ dysfunction score, progression to delayed septic shock, as well as hospital length of stay. And interestingly, they did find a mortality benefit in this patient population. However, those results have not been able to be replicated thus far. In the second study here by Nefei and colleagues in 2013, again, a multi-center randomized controlled trial. This had a total of 80 patients that were admitted either to pulmonary, ICU, or general medicine floors. They had the same hydrocortisone uh, regimen as the previous study, so 200 milligram IV bolus with an infusion of at 10 milligrams per hour for seven days compared to placebo. And they did see a statistical benefit in the hydrocortisone group for PaO2, PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, overall duration of mechanical ventilation, as well as IV antibiotic duration, and hospital length of stay. Mortality was not assessed in this group, but one of the big downfalls was that there were baseline differences between groups that ultimately could have accounted for at least some of the differences in outcomes. Bloom and colleagues um, published a multi-center randomized controlled trial in 2015 with nearly 800 patients. These were patients that either started in the emergency department and were included in the trial or were part of general medicine or ICU floors. They received either prednisone 50 milligrams daily for seven days or placebo and ultimately found a statistical benefit in the prednisone group for time to clinical stability. However, patients 
did have more hyperglycemia in this patient population that required insulin. And then ultimately kind of the big thing with this one is that there was no mortality length of stay or organ damage benefit within that prednisone group. And then the final study here by Torres and colleagues, again, a multi-center uh, randomized controlled trial. This had 120 patients in it that were either on a medical floor or an ICU. And these patients were randomized to receive either methylprednisone, 0.5 milligram per kilogram every 12 hours for five days or placebo. They did find a statistical benefit in the methylprednisone group for reduced treatment failure. However, again, no mortality, length of stay, or organ damage benefit, uh, which really limited its applicability in practice. I did want to cover uh, briefly just the pulmonary severity index, as this was part of what patients were evaluated for for the study. So just quickly to cover this does include some demographic factors, including age, sex, and if they resided in a nursing home, existing illnesses, so liver, kidney disorders, history of stroke, cancer, or heart failure. Looking into the physical exam, patients were evaluated based on vitals and if they had altered mental status present. They look at lab and x-ray findings as well, so things that you would find on a CBC and BMP, and then also arterial pH, PaO2 or SpO2, and pleural effusion. So ultimately, when you combine all of these points together, you're able to assess the mortality risk for these patients. And I'll get into this in just a minute, but patients with a PSI greater than 130 have a high risk, and that is part of the patient population that we'll be looking at today. And I'm sure you're familiar with this, but just to cover it quickly, um, the IDSA guidelines do have classification for severe CAP. And so this includes either one major criterion or three or more minor criteria. So this include things like a respiratory rate greater than or equal to 30, a PaO2 to FiO2 of less than or equal to 250, multilobar infiltrates, any altered mental status, UN greater than or equal to 20, leukopenia defined as a white blood count uh, less than 4,000, that's strictly associated with infection. So that doesn't include patients with chemotherapy. Also platelets less than 100,000, a temperature less than 36 degrees Celsius, or any hypotension that requires fluids in order to remedy that. And then major criteria include septic shock um, that does require vasopressors or mechanical ventilation for respiratory failure. So the IDSA recommendations for non-severe CAP include recommending against the use of hydrocortisone or corticosteroids. Uh, this is a strong recommendation based on a high quality of evidence, which is different from our severe CAP patients in which they suggest not using corticosteroids. But this is more of a conditional recommendation based on only a moderate quality of evidence. And then finally, for CAP with refractory shock, they do endorse the use of corticosteroids that is based on the surviving sepsis guidelines. And then just a bit here on the study design. This was a phase three multi-center double-blind randomized controlled trial across 31 different French centers by the members of the Clinical Research and Intensive Care and Sepsis Trial Group for Global Evaluation and Research and Sepsis Network. 
Patients were randomized to receive either hydrocortisone IV 200 milligrams daily for either four or eight days with a taper for a total duration of eight to 14 days or placebo. At four days and then again at eight days, patients were assessed to see if they had had clinical improvement and if they were able to then start the taper. Tapers typically decreased the total daily dose by 50% for two to three days before then ultimately continuing on with a lower dose. The primary outcome was death at 28 days. Secondary outcomes included death from any cause at 90 days overall length of stay in the ICU for patients that were not intubated or requiring uh, mechanical ventilation at baseline. They looked at non-invasive ventilation as well as intubation. Also, uh, the use of vasopressors, ventilator-free days, and vasopressor-free days at 28 days. They looked at PaO2 to FiO2 change and the SOFA score change at seven days and then utilized a 36-item short-form survey to assess quality of life at 90 days. Safety outcomes included secondary infections like ventilator-associated pneumonia or a bacteremia or GI bleeds at 28 days. And then they also did look at hyperglycemia requiring what their daily insulin was and weight gain at seven days as well. So patients were included if they were age 18 years or older, admitted to the ICU with severe community-acquired pneumonia. They defined severe community-acquired pneumonia as one of the four options here listed. So mechanical ventilation with a PEEP greater than or equal to five, administration of oxygen via high-flow nasal cannula with a PaO2 to FiO2 of less than 300, and an FiO2 of greater than or equal to 50%. If their estimated PaO2 to FiO2 was less than 300, or if their PSI was greater than 130. So these are your high-risk patients. Patients were excluded for a variety of reasons, but if patients had refused intubation, had septic shock, some other type of infection, um, in particular influenza, if they had an aspiration event prior they had cystic fibrosis or a post-obstructive pneumonia. They also um, looked at viral hepatitis, myelosuppression, if patients were previously sensitive to steroids or received steroids for another indication, such as chemotherapy. They did exclude protected patient populations, as well as other patients involved in drug trials and those that had been previously mechanically ventilated in the previous 14 days, or if they had received antibiotics for a pulmonary infection in the previous seven days. So overall, they screened nearly 6,000 patients, um, but ended up randomizing a total of 800 and 400 patients were included in the hydrocortisone group for analysis and 395 were analyzed uh, in the placebo group. Overall, uh, baseline characteristics really were quite similar between groups, the median age being 67, um, so more of our elderly patient population. Also, only roughly 30% of patients were female. We did uh, see similar coexisting conditions. Um, So some of our common comorbidities that we see here in the United States um, were very balanced between groups, including COPD, history of asthma, diabetes, and immunosuppressed patients. 
patients were also very similar between groups with respect to um, mechanical ventilation requirements, those that required high flow nasal cannula, and those requiring a non-bury breather. The PSI uh, was also very similar between groups with about 46% of patients in the hydrocortisone group being class 5 and 49% in the placebo group being class 5. Again, very similar characteristics between groups here as well. The SAPS-2 score takes into account things like age, vitals, GCS, urine output, labs, and then chronic comorbidities. Those were balanced between groups. Same thing with the SOFA score, with each of them having a score of four for a median score. This, again, takes into account very similar things as the STAPS-2 score. Treatment with vasopressors, overall percentages were similar between groups. Overall lab values were similar. And then the median interval time from admission into the hospital and then escalation to ICU, and also from the time of being admitted to ICU and starting the trial agent were similar between groups as well. So there was a statistical difference in the primary outcome of death by 28 days. We saw a difference of 5.6% in favor of the hydrocortisone group. They also did find a statistical difference in, again, in favor of the hydrocortisone group at, for death at 90 days with a difference of 5.4%. Patients that did not require mechanical ventilation at baseline, those that were intubated at 21 days were statistically lower in the hydrocortisone group compared to placebo. Also, vasopressor requirements at 28 days and intubation um, at 28 days in patients that didn't require intubation at baseline were statistically lower in the hydrocortisone group compared to placebo. With respect to safety outcomes, really the only major difference here was that patients did require statistically more insulin for hyperglycemia in the hydrocortisone group compared to placebo, which isn't something that should be overly surprising to any of us. And then Hospital-acquired infections, gastrointestinal bleeding, and weight change uh, were not different between groups. The group did uh, go ahead and do a subgroup analysis of the primary endpoint, which I thought was interesting to include. So patients that were not mechanically ventilated did see the um, statistical benefit in utilizing the hydrocortisone compared to placebo. They also saw the benefit in the patients who actually they were unable to identify which particular pathogen was causing the pneumonia. Patients that were older than 65 years also saw a statistical benefit in the hydrocortisone group compared to placebo. Surprisingly, women were also, there was a statistical benefit in the hydrocortisone group. Same with those that actually did not have a PSI greater than 130. And then those with CRP greater than 15. So I think this is just really interesting overall in that the subgroup analysis does give us the opportunity to see which specific patient populations may benefit from hydrocortisone in severe CAP with respect to death at 28 days. Overall, the authors did conclude that patients who received hydrocortisone compared to placebo had a lower risk of death at day 28 when they were um, admitted to the ICU for severe community-acquired pneumonia.
I do think it's important to talk a little bit about the strengths and limitations of this study because there was kind of a lot going on. Overall, from the strength perspective, the, I, it was a really good trial design in that it was a randomized controlled trial. Overall, there wasn't a lot of confounding factors identified. So the internal validity of, of the study was really pretty good. They also had nearly 800 patients. So the sample size did allow them to show statistical significance. And this was quite a bit bigger, or at least the same size as the previous studies I discussed in the background. Also, the baseline characteristics were balanced. So again, uh, improving internal validity. Also, I, I liked the fact that there, the comorbidities that were reported in the baseline characteristics were very similar to patients that we would often see coming into our emergency departments and ultimately admitted to the ICU. Um, so patients with histories of COPD, asthma, diabetes, and um, immunosuppression. I think all of those are very relevant to the patients that we would see. And so ultimately that does help with external validity. And then I thought that adding the subgroup analysis was beneficial in that it helps us to see a little bit of which patients may actually be the ones that benefit from this steroid treatment, as opposed to those who um, may not actually benefit. There were also several uh, overall limitations of the study. They described um, a lower mortality rate than previous studies. So they suggest that it was possible that the actual severity of illness of the patients in their studies was much lower than what they had anticipated. They also didn't require standardized microbiologic investigation. So even though they encouraged people to test for influenza during endemic periods, they didn't necessarily require it. And so pathogens were not identified in 45% of the patients. They did exclude quite a few patients, specifically those that are immunosuppressed. And so we can't really look at applying these results to that patient population. They didn't spend a lot of time other than like hyperglycemia and GI bleeds and um, additional adverse effects like hospital-acquired pneumonia or bacteremias. So there are a lot of other potential adverse effects of steroids that they didn't look at that could potentially impact whether we decide to utilize steroids in this patient population. And then finally, not only do we not know like the ideal steroid, the ideal um, dosing of steroids for community-acquired pneumonia, even the surviving sepsis guidelines and the data surrounding sepsis um, has kind of controversial opinions about tapering steroids. And so it would be really hard to know um, what the ideal taper regimen would be in this patient population if one is needed at all. As far as future directions for research, I think that kind of focusing in on that subgroup analysis would be really helpful, identifying which patients by age, comorbidity, um, if there are specific organisms that the hydrocortisone would be more beneficial in, as well as um, labs and PSI. Digging into that a bit deeper, I think, would help us narrow down a specific patient population. As I mentioned just previously, um, there are mixed opinions about tapering um, steroids, specifically in sepsis. And so being able to identify what the appropriate regimen and also taper schedule for severe community-acquired pneumonia uh, would be helpful going forward. And then finally, there were a number of patients excluded 
from this study, including the immunosuppressed and patients that were on steroids at baseline. Um, so I think maybe digging in a bit further into those patients um, would also be interesting because they also might be patients that benefit the most um, from more invasive uh, therapies. I would like to thank uh, my preceptor for this presentation, Dr. Allie Lewis. Thank you for your help. And with that, I will take any questions that you might have. If you have enjoyed this presentation content and would like to hear more, subscribe via your favorite podcasting app. Additionally, make sure to check out our YouTube page for all recorded presentations. Thank you for listening to this week's ACCP Emergency Medicine Journal Club presentation. Join us weekly for review and discussion of new journal articles in emergency medicine. This podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional health care services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. And the use of the contents and materials in the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users or patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. The user or patient should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guest and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Emergency Medicine PRN.